All right, so after admittedly an uneven first season, I think Deep Space Nine has kind of turned a pretty important corner in these last two episodes. Yeah, so, I mean, I get the sense that, especially watching Duet, is, okay, so this is what Deep Space Nine is going to be. I mean, that's the sense that I'm getting from it. Um, Yeah, I I think that Duet is the first legitimately great episode of the series, and it's also more representative of the series as a whole. I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, the entire season, it almost reminded me of, like, a camera going in and out of focus. Like, there's parts when it's, you know, working better than others, and parts where it's still not completely. And then, yeah, once Duet hits, it's it's there. Um, It's... The acting on every on, especially on Kira's part, is even better. The way it's the situation goes from as many angles as you can possibly think of. It was an amazing episode. I actually ended up having to watch it twice just because I kind of wanted to catch where you know, because 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 this episode really does almost twist what's happening every couple of minutes. Um, especially the first time you're watching and you're not really sure where it's going and so you know just on a plot level i wanted to follow it but um yeah i really these two episodes were fantastic yeah i mean we've we've had episodes of of deep space nine that i think work on a couple different levels but but this one really works on i think several different levels and what's more interesting about it is that I'm not really sure where this came from. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, because the show has been decent so far, and I think there have been some interesting episodes, and the, and the show has been intriguing and sort of pointing to something bigger uh, in, in sort of its scope and its storytelling ambitions than than the next generation certainly ever did. And I mean, you know, because for for all of its its you know many many. Uh, uh, positive attributes. I don't think the next generation was that good at world building and deep space nine is, I think more than anything else showing itself as a series, which is extremely interested in world building and in having characters inhabit corners of a, of a really fully fleshed out universe and kind of seeing how their environment, how their society and how their culture is sort of shaping them and sort of telling this story as it develops. And I think what's interesting about Duet is that it it kind of, I don't know if it retcons the Bajorans and the Cardassians as much as it reveals sort of the depth of the depravity of the, of the occupation in a way. And, you know, for, for I mean, for, for a large part of the episode, this is, uh, an analogy of a Holocaust story. Yeah, I mean, the Cardassians aren't always Nazis, and usually they're not, but they. I, I find that the series does allow for us to put that kind of a, an interpretation or an analogy to it when it's necessary for the episode. And I mean, this episode does very much um, uh, deal with... I mean, this is a very strong theme that they can get to, and if so if if the Cardassians are a bit more Nazi-ish than we normally think they are, I think that's okay even, and it doesn't feel completely inconsistent. And I think one of the points of this episode is that this is about breaking down, the entire series seems to be, but this episode is breaking down what it means, you know, Cardassia as one monolithic entity. I mean, it's ambiguous to the degree which, you know, for example, Gil Dukat was, you know, cognizant of what was going on in the labor camps and, you know, whether he had anything directly to do with any of that or whether he was just, you know, maybe he 
found it very convenient to swallow the official stories and not think deeper. Um, you know, but you know, it's it's becoming very clear that there are people who really do sink to this, you know, Auschwitz level depravity, and then people who you know, do work for, for the glory of Cardassia, but aren't doing it cruelly and who are doing it with a bit of honor or morality. Um, well, I think I think the interesting thing about Duet, though, is that we're not really sure. I mean, we never we never see the real Goldar heel. And so no. it, it's an interpretation of, of him that is being played by this filing clerk, Maritza. And, you know, we don't exactly know what the real Goldar heel was like. We don't know if he was this like raging Bajoran racist. We don't know if he really felt this way. I mean, obviously the labor camp was horrible and there were, you know, there, there were, there were legitimate war crimes going on yeah. at this labor camp, but at the same time, mm, there's war crimes we're, we're, and there's war crimes. Well, there's, well, yeah, but we also don't know what the motivations are. And mm. so, uh, you know, that's kind of one of the interesting parts of the episode is that it does paint at least Goldar Heel and this one labor camp, uh, uh, the Galatep labor camp, as as being, you know, kind of a, a, a Bajoran Auschwitz or a Bajoran concentration camp from the Holocaust. But at the same time, it it doesn't because there's a there's a there, there's a degree of of flexibility in the way that this is being interpreted, and and we don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, when when. There is that one point where he's saying, well, look, it was a labor camp. You know, conditions were harsh. You know, people would fight over food or a blanket, you know, or something like he, you know, it, in that point, even at his most, you know, he's pretending to be very generous towards the camp. But even at his most generous, it's still an awful place. It's still not a place that anybody would ever want to spend five minutes in. You know, people would it w- was probably a death sentence if you're old or sickly. Um, oh, yeah. But then is it a place where people are being actively toward, you know, is there a Cardassian Dr. Mengel who's performing, you know, horrible experiments? You know, is there are the people shooting, you know, are there soldiers shooting people just for the hell of it? You know, are women being indeed being raped in front of their children? You know, it it, it is it, you're you're right. They can while while it's unambiguous, the Galatev was an awful place. It's not sure to what degree. It really was just maybe a harsh labor camp where a lot of people died, or it was a chamber of the biggest depravity. I mean, yeah, it I maybe doesn't, but I think in a way, uh, what Moritz's plan is is designed to get Cardassia to start to figure that out because it is very clear that you know the average Cardassian, when listening to stories about Galatep, said, "Well, it was just a very harsh labor camp for prisoners of war." And couldn't handle thinking of any deeper than that. You know, in a way, he wants this to go to trial because if there were atrocities, they need to be brought to light and dealt with. The I, I, I think that that's a good point, but I, I wonder about... You know, let, let's take a step back and let, let's actually yeah. sort of go over w- what we know about the Cardassian occupation and sort of the the, uh, the real motivations for it, right? Because I think in this episode, they've kind of intimated it in the past, but they haven't really explicitly mentioned it, I don't think, before. But, you know, what, what Maritza says in this episode is that... And, you know, you, you have to take what Maritza says with a yeah, grain of salt, of course. Everything because everything he's saying is to incarnate, you know... the, the he, He's incarnating Kira's worst nightmare, you know? It, it, exactly, exactly. And I think he's he's trying to play the role of 
an unabashed villain because he yeah. feels that this is the best way for Cardassia to start to reckon with the Bajoran occupation. I mean, but, there's that one scene, yeah, when he's just, you know, almost screaming and she's like, oh, my God, you're insane, you know, when he reveals himself. Yeah. And, you know, on, it's, on the one hand, it's almost cartoonishly super villainish. But again, we've seen videos of Hitler where he's even more, you know, over the top than that. And... Frankly, she and we want to believe in someone that evil because, you know, then someone that evil can be punished without guilt and can be, you know, and can be righteously punished. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, if you look at the Cardassian occupation and you say, okay, this was a, from what we know of Cardassia, it is a, uh, they need resources. I, I don't know if it's a barren world. I don't know what's going on. Maybe they've just strip mined it to to hell. I, you know who knows. But they they come across the Bajorans and or maybe they already knew about them. Who knows? But Bajor is a sort of resource rich world for various reasons that have yeah. things to do with their culture and their society. And you know the fact that Bajor, it doesn't seem like Bajor ever had. A, a large spacefaring program. It doesn't really seem that yeah. they were ever very interested or maybe even capable of, you know, long-term exploration or, you know, colonization or whatever of, of, yeah. of different planets. And I mean, like, and let's so, say the core of their planet is pure latinum, you know, is kind of what, yeah. you know, they're essentially implying. Yeah. I mean, you know, Deep Space Nine was a, was a Cardassian mining station. Yeah. You know, there are, there are all these kind of intimations that, that the Cardassians just needed the Bajoran resources. And, of course, you know, they're not going to ship large numbers of Cardassians to Bajor when they have a workforce there. And I think from the other thing that we've we've learned, and that's not to, to you know, that, that makes me sound cavalier about it. I'm not being cavalier about it. I'm just looking at this from sort of a dispassionate point of view. And then you have the Cardassians, which, as as we've seen them so far— you know, we don't really know a lot about the Cardassian philosophy or Cardassian beliefs, but but we can sort of intimate, especially in this episode, that I don't know that the Cardassian antipathy towards Bajorans has to do with the fact that they're Bajorans, or it just has to do with the fact that they're not Cardassians. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the the there are plenty of examples of you know people in on our in Earth history who you know basically conquered and then used slave slave labor, and that's essentially what's happening here. Um, and yeah, the, 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 um, I mean, going from this and putting it out in this way, the Cardassians seem very locust like, you know, they almost seem to like, is that their thing? They, they go to a world, strip it dry, go to the next world, strip it dry. I mean, that's what it seems like they may do. And if that's the case, then that almost does seem like, you know, you know, that makes the very, Cardassian existence almost cancerous in a way. And I've, you know, that, that interpretation makes me think that, you know, to keep Cardassians as sustainable as, and as not the bad guy, they need to completely restructure their culture in in order to not be, you know, have their survival be dependent on taking apart what's, you know, because that basically makes them the Borg in a lot of ways. I mean, there is no, they, they they are very similar if that's their motivations, if that's their thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is an interesting episode for the Cardassians because this is the first time that I think we've really met a Cardassian that thinks that the occupation was a bad thing and frankly thinks that the Cardassian Empire, Cardassia, whatever you want to call it, is 
or, or would be better off if they sort of had to reckon with this occupation and what they did over the past 50 years. And yeah. I, I don't see that there's a lot of desire on the part of any other Cardassians to do that. I mean, we don't know a lot about Garrick. We don't know about a lot about Gold Ducat, who appears in this episode again. Uh, you know, and so we, we only can Card- go by what we see. We saw Cardassian... Oh. I, and maybe this was the one who tortured Picard because he has the daughter, you know. And, uh, but we've seen Cardassians talk about how they don't necessarily want to be at war. You know, again, I think Goldukat does want to preserve peace, whether he necessarily considers the Federation his friends or not. He does recognize that, yeah, we don't necessarily want a war with them and, you know— Sometimes we have to work together in order to be able to leave each other alone in a way I think is what, you know, Goldicott's thing. But yeah, that is def- that is different from recognizing the depths to which, you know, their society may be wrong. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, what, what this episode really reveals is that the Cardassians are a species that are kind of living beyond their means. And, mm. you know, if they're having to go out and, and sort of strip mine and, and, and lay bare, lay waste to... Uh, you know, other planets, then their lifestyle probably isn't sustainable. And so that's kind of the open question about the episode as well, because, you know, Gold Ducat is a character that, you know, you don't know a lot about right now, but he does become, you know, a recurring character in the series. And as, as his role in the occupation is revealed and things of that nature, you know, I don't want to go too far down a road of speculating about what exactly that is, but, you know, it's just interesting that, you know, because he the, commanded the, deeps. He was Cisco, basically. Yeah, what, yeah, exactly. And and so he was there. I mean, he wasn't on Bajor, but he was sort of. I mean, if this was a Cardassian mining, uh, you know, station, it presumably they were using Bajoran laborers. I don't think that the, yeah. you know, the Cardassians were were doing That's all true. the hard work. So yeah, then you get the sense that Golducat, you know, knew that he knew that he was directly receiving, let's say, the products of slave labor. You know, he probably knew that the conditions weren't great, but just to be able to sleep at night, I don't think he questioned the depth to which, you know, what the conditions exactly were. You know, and then you have people like Goldar Heel who, you know, are apparently actively participating in, you know, Goldar Heel knows the exact depths to which the atrocities are and seems to have no problems with this. Again, Maritza is giving us a an exaggeration of Darheel, an impression of Darheel, but at the same time, he of all the characters is the closest to Darheel. Well, and I would also time with him. I, I, I would be careful to say that he's giving us an impression of Darheel because, frankly, we don't know what Darheel was really like. And if if Maritza's goal here is to force a trial for one of the worst. Yeah, one of the worst Cardassian war crime, you know, criminals that that the Bajorans feel is still is still out there. You know, he he's probably doing this. Uh, uh, he he may yeah, not again, have absolutely he is... nothing to do with what Darheel is really like. Not that the that's actually time, the point of the episode, but I mean, at the same time, I would suggest that you know, if it was just a simple you know crappy conditions, you know, but it was a labor camp, you know. I don't think he would necessarily be going quite to these lengths because then he would maybe see something more about, you know, the conditions of slavery in, you know, he really does seem to have, a you know, see Goldar heel as a very 
fundamental, you know, as making some fundamentally wrong decisions here. I don't think he thinks that Golda Heel was misunderstood or, you know, oh, doing no. the no, best no, no, he no, can. No. You know, he definitely does, you know, let's bring good and evil in just for convenience. He definitely does believe that Golda Heel was, was evil. Well, and this, that, that, I think that actually raises an interesting point because I remember saying, you know, episodes and episodes ago when we were talking about The Next Generation and, and maybe even in, in the original series that it, the Star Trek universe is one that does believe in the existence of good and doesn't believe in the existence of evil. Yeah. And I think that Deep Space Nine is starting to turn the screw on that a little bit. And and I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that Deep Space Nine has changed that yet, but I, I, I do think that there are elements of the show and elements of the way that the show is going that would say that sometimes there is evil out there that that is just not... Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it's not, not uh, uh, represented at all, really. Well, I guess, you know, I, 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 I think it's, you know, Next Generation says that, you know, again, there is good, there isn't really evil, except for in Skin of Evil, and we don't really like to talk about that episode. But, um, you know, a lot of times it is misunderstandings. It is, you know, people making wrong choices. It is, you know people caught up in things that are bigger than, you know, or whatever. Um, and that's fine. And especially by the end of, you know, next generation, we believe that. And we believe all of the, you know, early nineties hippie messages of the series by the end of it. But, you know, deep space nine is then coming along and saying, yes, but we have to deal with the fact that in our world, you know, we have examples of genocide. We have examples of torture. We have examples of, some of the most vicious and almost inhuman cruelty happening. And, you know, we can still say that there's no evil in this world, but we also have to deal with the fact that, you know, what are, what is this? Well, uh, and I think, and I think that that raises a couple interesting questions and, and, and I kind of want to get your, your take on one of them. Okay. But the, the first thing of course, is that, it, it, you know, this, this is still Star Trek and, and in a, in a more cynical show or perhaps in a, in a less idealistic show, because at the end of the at the end of the episode, you know, when 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 Maritza is stabbed to death by the the drunk oh, Bajoran, yeah. uh, and the lesson of the episode is really, you know, killing someone just because of their their species is not enough. You know, okay, fine, that's a great, you know, well, we we can all get behind that. But that that's one that's one takeaway from the episode. But I think that in a more cynical show, Maritza's point would be given more credence, and I think that. If you look at the point of the war crimes tribunal that Maritza is trying to trick the provisional government into setting up for for Goldar Heel, who has been dead for six years, is that it would be a way to force the Cardassians to reckon with the Bajoran occupation in a real way, in a way that they haven't had to before. And, you know, there's been a lot written about war crimes tribunals in general, and I think that they're not really about punishing the person. They're more about forcing society to look at what happened. And they're a healing process for the society that was damaged by this war criminal. And so I think in a more cynical show, I think that you would have seen Kira and perhaps even Cisco go along with this because the, well, you know, because let's say the provisional government was like, yeah, we know he's not called our heel, but yeah, 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 yeah. That they, it seemed. And frankly, you know, when he, when he knows that Kira knows everything, you know, and he's saying, look, just tell them, you know, tell them that I'm Goldar Heel, you know, 
he's even leaving that possibility open. Like this can this secret can stay between us, but sure. you know, give your and frankly, I'm wondering how Bajor is gonna play this. I mean, this is gonna be essentially a Lee Harvey Oswald kind of a thing, Jack Ruby thing. Uh you know, just randomly on the way out, somebody frankly the Bajoran provisional government might 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 play this as, you know, a fanatic stabbed Goldar Hilo before he was able to go to trial, but he's dead, and you know, yeah. You know, and frankly, I, I, I mean, the provisional government at one point, you know, when they're talking to Cisco, essentially says that you know they're given giving Kira the essentially immunity to do whatever she wants. You know, she she even admits that you know holding him like this may not be legal, but. The Bajoran government is in no way going to get her in trouble because this is Goldar Heel. I am very sure that the drunk will be taken care of. I don't think he's going to rot in a cell, you know? Well, if we go as far as the Lee Harvey Oswald thing, then he might be killed. I mean, you know, and there's there's ways to look at that, and there are ways to look at that, of course. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think that, you know... If you look at the end of the episode and what what you get from that is okay, well maybe the you know let, let's take let's extrapolate that out. The provisional government may have you know paid this guy to murder him, you know to really get what they wanted. I mean we don't know, and I think that the the real open yeah. question though, of course, is that uh, if the provisional government wants people to think that this was Goldar Heel, even though Kira and the rest of the staff on Deep Space Nine don't, how far do the Cardassians want to take this? Because of course. One of the reasons why they they sort of decide that he's not Goldar Heel is because of the evidence presented by, yeah. by Gold Dukat and the Cardassians. I mean, you have to wonder that that this would be like. I think it's interesting that Maritz's plan is half thought out. In many ways, yeah. it is a very brilliant plan. It does work, uh, but the two mistakes that he makes: no, number one, he makes that mistake about knowing where Kira, the unit that Kira was in, and that's. You know, and frankly, it isn't even until she just offhandedly mentions it to Odo that, you know, are they even real? Because, yes, Moritz has been is very good in this episode of upsetting Kira and getting her to not completely think straight about it. You know, he even I mean, that part when he says, like, oh, did you find that out with help or, you know, he's even making fun of her. He almost seems like that's designed to egg her on to not, you know, getting any help and not asking other people for advice or for a for another take on it because frankly yeah. yeah it is the fact that odo is a step away from this that they find the first thread of the story even if he didn't say that they would have no reason to suspect him of lying but that eventually leads to the entire thing and yeah this mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to have any idea he doesn't even realize that go you know goldar heel didn't have this syndrome and wasn't on that day and you know, that's the other mistake you can imagine in this war crimes tribunal. Uh, Cardassia would try their damnedest to get a couple surprise witnesses there. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know that the provisional government would allow that, but, but that's, yeah, well, well, that, that's the other thing. I mean, I guess it's very interesting that we, you know, a lot of this is just kind of behind the scenes spinning and extrapolating, but the show does seem to invite that in a way that um because especially with the next episode i mean this episode this series is gonna have conspiracies that's gonna be a thing <laughs> more, yeah <laughs> like i, I, I you, yeah you, you could you could say that 
that much is very obvious. I'm very, you know, it's very obvious that what a re- you know what I've seen is like baby stuff compared to where the show is going uh, to go. But yeah, yeah. Well, there's an episode I'm thinking of that comes a few years later that uh, I I think will will shock you. I'm ready for a shock. Uh, I mean, it's 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 one of the most controversial episodes, I think, in the Star Trek franchise. So that, you know, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, at the so end, you, Cisco you, just takes off his mask and it's Picard. Well, maybe. Oh. Uh, yeah, and I think that, you know, leaving that, all, leaving that all aside, though, because I think, you know, we could talk about yeah, yeah, of course. That, this and that's all day. Kind of spinny. Uh, but I, I think the other this is the question I really wanted to get your your opinion on is. The show so far has been very, very circumspect in walking the line between the Bajoran Provisional Government and the Federation and what's going on with them. And we'll talk a lot more about that relationship in the next episode in the hands of the prophets, of course. But the the kind of question that I'm left with at the end of Duet is... We were introduced to the Bajorans, and we were introduced to this idea of the Cardassian occupation, you know, way back in, in the fifth season of, of the TNG with uh, Ensign Rowe. And we didn't know the depth of it at that point. And now that we're sort of realizing the depth of it and the sort of the depravity of it, frankly, it, what does it mean in a, in a, in a universe where, where the Federation exists and where we have been told over and over again that the Federation is an unmitigated good and that everyone is altruistic and selfless and they're just out there looking for... Uh, knowledge and they want to share information and they're out there to help people and they, you know they don't want to impose their will on other races what does it mean that, that that this kind of thing is still allowed to happen you know and this is kind of like an analogy to a lot of stuff that goes on in the world today or even was going on in the world in in uh, 1993 when this episode was filmed because let's not forget we had you know Slobodan Milosevic stuff going on in in, in mm. Serbia at the time and things like that so yeah. You know, what what does that mean for the Federation? I mean, does that sort of paint the Federation in a different light, do you think? Well, I mean, uh, you know, again, the Federation has always been America. That that's that's one of the uh kind of subtext to a, of to the a French. certain degree. Yeah, I, I, you I, know, I it it doesn't 100% always work. I mean, and it was more so in the original series, but there is a in, in a maybe if not quite America, it's us and whoever us is is ambiguous to the viewer, but dealing yeah. with other people in yeah. a way. Sure. And um you know in a way, I, I I mean American interventionalism is a very controversial thing. There are something like Vietnam was, you know, considered a clusterfuck because, you know, of America trying to butt its nose into something where it really had no fucking business, you know, yeah. being there. So okay, maybe it's bad, you know. But then what do you do when you do have a, a, a an example of a very severe genocide? You know, how do you make that call to say, well, I can do that here and it's going to be all right if I do this here or I can, you know, here's not a place where we should intervene in. And in a way, then so so you come up with something like a prime directive, which says that, well, we're going to full stop, you know, here's conditions where we can never intervene. And it's most of the time. And for the most part, you know, if it's someone who's, you know, not a member of the Federation or not directly asking the Federation for help, you know, we're not just going to butt in because, you know, and, you know, I, I don't know. Did, is, is Bajor just asking the Federation for help now, or did they ask it at the height of the occupation? Yeah, we don't know. I mean, yeah, and that's, kind of I mean, and that's a very, I think that's an important question because, you know, it's one thing if 
they didn't ask the Federation. And again, the Federation has a policy. We're not going to, you know, join in a conflict unless we're directly asked to intervene. And then, frankly, you know, one of the other parts of the Federation being on DS9 is, you know, Cisco Cisco puts it in terms of, you know, we're going to see if they can join the Federation. But you get the sense the Bajorans are being groomed at this point to be Federation members. Yeah. And I think, you know, well, let's be careful with the word groom because well, connotations you... that are kind of gross. But no, yeah, no, I know, no. But I, know but I mean, mean. I, you know, I, I, I don't completely I, 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 I don't think gross connotations are completely unwarranted because it may not necessarily be that the Bajorans want in the Federation that being Federation members is, you know, I don't know. Well, yeah, but I but I think that 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 the open question at this point in the series is the Bajoran Provisional Government did ask the Federation for help, and yes. wh- whether or not Bajor actually decides as a collective entity, you know, however they decide to do that, if they're going to have a vote or whatever, or if they're all just going to listen to the Kai and the Kai is going to say, "Oh, we're going to go into the Federation now," and everyone's going to be like, "All right, cool, we're all in the Federation now." You know, we don't know what the process is, and I, assumedly, the Federation would allow each individual planet to decide that for itself. Yes. Uh, you know, I don't think that the Federation is going to if the Bajorans say, you know what? No, we don't want the we don't want to be a part of the Federation. Federation's going to go. All right. And they're going to leave. I mean, that's you know, that's what the Federation does. But at the same time, if if Bajor wants the protection of the Federation indefinitely, I think that Bajor would have to say yes to the Federation at some point. Uh, they and that they does, imply that in the next episode at one point, yeah. you know. Actually, very, uh, uh, it's Cisco and Kira, you know, he, he asked her and she says, well, look, you know, I know if you leave, you know, Cardassians could be right back. You know, that that's what they're the, you know, in a way, yes, the federations are giving them the choice. But, you know, that choice is either, you know, you stay with us or we're going to leave you alone. Right. And remember what happened last time we left you alone. Yeah. Now. The advantage necessarily for the Federation of having Bajor in the Federation is a little less clear. I mean, it's certainly very symbolically important, but well, actually now, think, well, and especially now that the wormhole is there, frankly. Well, I, 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 I think that the Federation is not only interested in planets for, you know, resources or military yeah. or whatever. I mean, you know, the, the, the Bajoran people are very spiritual and obviously very cultural and, you know, they have a long history and... I think that they would be fine Federation members. I, you know, I don't think that there's any question as to why the Federation would not want Bajor in, in it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Fair. But yeah, I, you know, at the end of the day, we don't know. And I think it's just kind of an interesting question to raise at this point. I guess it's a case of, you know, the Federation is nice and helpful and friendly and they're going to let Bajor do what it wants. And, you know, it's going to be great. And the fact that there is this wormhole that a friendly ter- friendly power owns is just a very, very nice bonus for the Federation. You sure. know, you know, sure. maybe it may not be their initial motivation, but you know, it it, it may it sweetens the deal. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, before we move on to in the hands of the prophets, uh, maybe the last thing that we want to talk about is is Kira in this episode because you know we haven't really talked a lot you know, about her, and I think that this is an important episode for her. Well, these two episodes. These two episodes are Kira episodes, and it's actually made me realize that um, Kira's been kind of the, if not quite the protagonist of this season, in a way the most interesting. She's the one who's 
this, the, the, the person who's journeyed the most in the season has been Kira. We have seen her going from this, you know, very hot-headed and very, you know, not, you know, suddenly in this, you know, uniform that she doesn't really quite feel comfortable in, you know, as she says in Hands of the Prophets, you know, I, if you told me a year ago I'd be here, I would have laughed, you know, and, um, you know, these two, you know, we've seen her slowly getting over her anger and her rage and... You know, these two episodes are very interesting because Duet, you know, has her get to that realization that there can be good Cardassians. I mean, that bit at the end when she's saying, you know, no, you know, that's not enough. And you see her again, like you see her realizing it even as she's saying it, like she's just kind of, yeah, you know, just spitting that out. And, you know, suddenly she didn't know until she said it that she truly believed that. And then the next episode, Hands of the Prophet, shows that there are bad Bajorans, you know? Yeah. This yeah. isn't just, you know, what what we see in Hands of the Prophets is a pure, unmitigated power grab. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 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 in Duet, you know, aside from the fact that that this is a really great episode for Nana Visitor and she really steps up oh, her yeah. game in this episode. And, you know, the 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 interplay between the two of them is fantastic and really makes the episode is that I think for for Kira this is a, this is a turning point of an episode because again as you said she really is on this journey of of I don't want to say growing up but I think that she's but in she's, a way growing growing then because she is an well adult. I think that she's becoming less idealistic and she's becoming more of a sort of uh, she understands the politics of situations I think a lot more than she did before because if you look at what she was a year ago she was. Mm. A freedom fighter slash terrorist, depending on your point of view, whose sole goal was to sow discord and kill Cardassians. And she had a very clear goal and she had a very clear line between what was good and what was bad. And now she's having to navigate politics. She's having to navigate, you know, politics around religion. She's having to navigate the Federation Bajoran relationship. She's having to be a, a person who's in a position of authority. You know, she's got a lot of responsibilities now that she's not sure that she even wants. And I think that what this episode in particular is showing, and if you look at even something like Progress from a few weeks ago, where she very much comes down on the side of, no, I have a, I have a duty to the provisional government. Yeah. Uh, that that I, I that is kind of over my you know own individual wants and desires. I think that again in this episode, what she's revealing is that she realizes that the Dacians are going to have to come to some sort of reckoning, but it can't be a false reckoning. Well, and yeah, just as Cardassia has to own up to the fact that it's committed some atrocities. I mean, this episode implies that she killed civilians, you know, or, or outright states that, you know, civilians were killed as a result of her actions. I mean, she has come from, frankly. But I, the, but the, I wonder in, about in, that, though, because what what does it mean to be a civilian on a military occupied planet? Well, that's what, really what why the, would civilians be there? Like, well, I mean, are we talking about. Are we talking about the wives or husbands of Cardassian military personnel stationed there? Are we talking about the children of that? I mean, like, do you know well, what I mean? Like, there's an open question. Yeah, at this yeah, point yeah. But I mean, but I guess. Are we talking know, about filing clerks? I mean, I don't well, know. Well, well, the thing is, previously to this episode, again, the year ago, she had to think of, well, everybody, every single Cardassian on Bajor is trespassing and they're in a way, you know, they're trespassing on my home and they wouldn't have any good reason to be there. So. 
Therefore, they are all guilty. Just as, frankly, the people who were working at Galatep had to think, well, all Bajorans are, you know, essentially vermin and we, you know, it's okay if we exterminate them because they're, you know, not really, you know, that thinking of someone as not really people. And this episode comes to her and realizes that, no, there were people even at Galatep who felt, you know, who didn't know how to, you know, get over, you know, how, how to do the right thing. And, you know, who may have just been in a bad situation and, you know, again, she, she's beginning, she's not in civilian life, certainly, but she's a lot closer than she had been a year ago. And she's at the point where she really has to start thinking of Cardassians as people. That's the lesson in this episode that she has to start dealing with them individually. Any, soldier has to dehumanize their enemies a little bit in order to you know perform soldiering um and which of course means effectively kill them yeah um and that is something that a lot of soldiers have difficulty with in reestablish you know reintegrating into civilian life and we so in a way that's some of what kira's journey is coming from you know that yeah fact that she was a soldier who now has to not be a soldier yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I think that's a good place to leave Duet. Um, just a fantastic episode, really. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to the last episode of the first season of G-Space 9, In the Hands of the Prophets. This is really interesting because I was thinking about this in terms... I was comparing this to a lot of the finales from Next Generation. Um, you know, even... Uh, 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 like um, descent, like where you yeah, like all, no, but like you know, thinking about like uh, uh, um, all good things, even or best of both worlds. I mean, you could watch those episodes without really knowing what Star Trek is, and it's still all good things a little more so. It's very much a sci-fi story about you know the judgment of man's soul and what we take, you know, what's important in life yeah. and all of those things. And yes, there are resonances that. You know, having watched the entire series, it's a deeper episode. But you could – this episode, if you just saw this as your first episode, it would make probably no sense, which I think is really interesting. It's a very different tone to it. This is a – it's a finale in that it's taken a lot of the themes that – and elements that have been building this entire time and finally makes its statement on those. Again, I see this as Kira's season, and this is getting her – to the point where at the very beginning of the series season, she was thinking, okay, well, the Federation is probably the best hope. You know, they're not the greatest, but they're the best that we have too. At this point, she's actually actively trusting Cisco as a person, as a friend, as, you know, as a comrade in a lot of ways. And that, you know, she considers the, again, the fact, you know, at the end, you know, her and Cisco, Cisco going off to do paperwork and, make sense of this thing that just happened is her saying, you know, no, you know, Bajor and the Federation do need to be friends, you know, do need to work together. That's the best way for both of us. And, you know, so I, 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 I don't know. This is, this is going to maybe be a tough episode to talk about, but. Well, I think that, you know, yeah, I agree with all of that, but I think that one of the interesting things about in the hands of the prophets is, is how it's sort of, you know, it, it queers Bajor in a way. And, and I don't mean that in a sexual way. I mean that in a no, sort of I... sociopolitical way, uh, because we've always been under the impression that the Bajoran religion is the thing that really holds their, their entire planet together. And in this episode, it's revealed that there are yeah. deep divisions, you know, there's, there's Orthodox factions and there's, you know, and so 
while the religion is holding the planet together in as much as anything is, it is an uneasy truce and it is an uneasy peace and it could be shattered at any point. Well, you know, this is a, yeah, it's, this is a series that doesn't believe in monocultures at all. Um, and so, you know, while up till now it's been necessary to just kind of what glimpses we've seen of the religion be one. Yeah. Now here, of course it makes sense that there's factions in the Bajoran religion. I mean, you know, the, it, it, I, yeah. I feel stupid not even predicting, you know, not even thinking that would be a thing. And I mean, yeah, I will yeah, say yeah. I liked this episode because, you know, as a Catholic, I thought it was all great Catholic conspiracy shit. You know, that's this is this is essentially. Oh, yeah, this is two cardinals, you know, fighting over who gets to be pope. So I loved that about it. But um, well, that's that's essentially what it is. I mean, Robert Hewitt Wolf, who wrote the episode, you know, even said that he took, you know, most of the inspiration for this from like 15th and 16th century Catholicism. Oh, yeah. you know, and and so. I, you know, there's you've got the, you know, Medici's fighting over, you know, power and all that kind of stuff. And what's really interesting about this is that it paints the provisional government in a, in a really weird light, because what is the provisional government? You know, it's the secular government of Bajor, but does it really have any power? We don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem to in this episode. I mean, no one even talks about it in this episode. It's all about the Bajoran religion and the, the battle over who's going to become Kai and, the, you know, the Vedic assembly. And, you know, the, you've got these new these two new Vedics who were introduced, Vedic Burial and, and, and Vedic Win. And, you know, we're not sure who's going to become the next Kai. But yeah, at the, this point... This episode well, implies it's going to be Barai, be, and which is why Wynn's even doing this, you know. They Barai, say that, yeah. you know, sh- yeah, you know, at one point they say she's favored, but not enough, you know. And obviously he, you know, the, the implication that, you know, is he's first in line and she's, you know, a close second, but, you know. Well, it doesn't even sound like she's a close second. I mean, he, it sounds like she's so far removed from power that it's really I, not even possible for her to become Kai. It's ambiguous, you know, it, it, with him around. I don't think impo- actually I disagree with you. I don't think it's ambiguous at all. I mean, they flat out say that she has almost no support in the Vedic Assembly. I thought they said she was favored for Kai, though. No, no, that's Burial. No, but, but I mean, the implication that I got was that with him out of the picture, she will probably get it. There's no one else who's close to her, but he may like, in other words, he's got a million points. She's got a thousand points and everyone's got like 20 or 30. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go too far down in this road, yeah, but I think that, that it doesn't really matter as much, but I, but I think my, my interpretation of that is that Vedic win has almost no support in the Vedic assembly and she is going to systematically go through all of her rivals <laughs> and, and, well, and kill them or, 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 you know, cause some sort of scandal to get rid of them, you know, you know and so either way of, it's not impossible. Yeah. I would not want to be more popular than she is. Well, that's right. And I think that, you know, if she had succeeded in killing Vedic Burial, who is the the favored Vedic to become the next Kai, that's going to put so much like uh, that's that's going to push her sales forward and say, I got rid of this guy. And now, I'm, you know, I can get rid of anybody. And there's uh, also, yeah, it didn't happen. There was also the, you know, one of the things I thought. So, I mean, it's very clear that he is, you know, a more modern thinking hippie priest, you know, than frankly, even yeah. than Kai Apaka was, you know, and she was a fairly more modern than Vedic Wynn, you know, was. But, you know, I almost got the implication that male priests are sort of rare, you know, within. You know, we, we've seen power in this church as being very women, you know, centered among the women. And, you know. That's interesting, yeah. You know, I, I got this, you know, like just as, you know, if we see in real life, you know, a, a female priest, you know, it's an implication that she's in a more, you know, again, a more modern thinking, se- you know, sect, a more. Um, that was the implication that I took from there. 
So either way, it's fairly clear that if he is Kai, he, he, even if she doesn't get to be Kai at any point, he's, he's going to steer the church even further from her sphere of influence, you know? Well, I think what's He's what's going to make things even less conservative, and she's not going to be welcome in that. Sure. But I, but I think what's interesting about this is that it really does paint the, the Bajoran planet as, as being a lot more fragile than perhaps we were led to believe. Because, of course, the provisional government has always been said to be, you know, the, the, the joke yeah. that Quark says in the first episode, provisional governments, you know, whatever he says. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Kaiopaka kind of, it seems now, being the religious influence that was holding the religious order yeah. together and, and, and holding all of the, the Bajorans together in their spiritual life. And now that she is removed from the picture, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen? There are some really deep divisions that are coming to the surface. And Yeah. You know, I, re- I remember the thing from the first episode being not that the religion is what's preventing from civil war, but Kayapaka, I think they specifically said sure. her. You know, and so, the you know, we loved her. She's awesome. And, you know, you get the sense that every single one of the Vedics loves her. And, you know, pretty much everybody on Bajor, she's the most popular Kai possible. So, yeah, as long as she's in charge, no one's going to... Vedic Wynn would never dare make an attempt on Kayapaka, you know. But, you know, Kayapaka yeah. is not dead, but, you know, has to eventually resign. She can't really reign from you know, the other side of the wormhole very well on a planet where people probably may not even really be able to visit easily. <laughs> but I mean, uh, she's she's effectively dead. I mean, you know, they're, yeah. they're talking about getting a new Kai. So I think that what whatever happened behind the scenes, we don't know. But Kai Opaka recorded a resignation speech and I don't yeah, know exactly. they played they, it on Pajoran TV or whatever. Who knows? But yeah, and I think that, that you know... What what's what's uh, what what else is interesting about this is that you know Vedic Vedic Win is a really interesting character because we haven't really seen this degree of sort of political machination before in the yeah. show I think and you know it really does paint Vedic Win as being a dangerous force that that nobody is really prepared to deal with frankly and no you doesn't think even of her, really uh, yeah doesn't even really seem to be aware that this problem exists. And, you know, while this is all manufactured outrage at the end of the day, just to get Vedic Burial to the station so that Neela yeah. can try and kill her, kill him, it, it comes from somewhere, you know, and, and Vedic when does she actually believe this stuff? Does she not actually believe this stuff? Is she using this to gain power? We, you know, we don't know. And frankly, it probably doesn't really matter at this point because, Vedic Win is using the real desires and the real beliefs of real Bajorans yeah. to to gain power. Oh, yeah, I yeah. mean, Kira is sympathetic to her philosophy. Yeah. I I thought. Well, I guess one one of the real significant lines in this you know episode for me was the part when Cisco's visiting Barai and Barai saying like, "Look, you know, I Barail." Brile, I can't get you into this conference. You know, I can't get you to talk to all the Vedics. You I, know? I'm only saying that because Brile becomes a recurring character, and I don't want you to keep saying Brile. <laughs> okay. Um, well, Vedic Brile says that. Um, um, uh, you know, you, you know, he says I can't get you into, you know, into the assembly. But you know, when I am Kai, you know, I can do a lot more favors for you. And you know, you know, the 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 prophets teach us patience, and you know. Cisco responds without, I see they also teach you politics, you know, and then we see, you know, 
but it's interesting because even though Burial is a very political person, he's his game of politics is he makes friends with the right people and he knows when his moment is, you know, he doesn't do things prematurely. And to a degree, he has a very, he, he has a point. If he does, you know, Burial is going to be a much bigger asset to Cisco as Kai. He will be able to anytime Cisco needs a favor, Burial will be able to do it. Right now, he doesn't have this power, and he really only has one shot at, you know, giving him the favor. So, yeah, that's a pretty good point that, you know, look, you know, this consider this an investment. I'm going to help you when it's the right time. And then we see, you know, but that's a fairly benign form of politics because we see Vedic Wynn's form of politics involves deception, assassination, uh, frankly, apostasy if we're considering her – using the beliefs of her followers for her own, you know, nefarious purposes. Um, sure. She literally, you know, tells this woman who's the, you know, uh, uh, O'Brien's assistant that, you know, well, whatever, like, it doesn't matter that you're going to get caught like, oh, well, you know, you know, tough shit. You know, that, that that's a more, and yet, you know, her her form of political machinations are so much more subtle. I mean, the fact that she is seen by most people who are not Bajoran as kind of a crank is frankly one is one of her most dangerous assets because she frankly is a viper hiding in plain sight. Well, I think, yeah. And I think that Vedic win in this episode, you know, even though this is the first time that we see her is, is revealed to be a person that everybody should keep their eye on because I mean, yeah, she, she engineers, uh, you know, pretty much, Everything that she wants to happen in this episode happens, except for, of course, Burial not being killed. I mean, she wanted and, the cover photo of Burial dying in her arms, you know? Like, that's what was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and the fact of the and matter she, is, yeah. you know, she's she's using... I mean, let, let's talk about the whole fundamentalism debate in this episode, because I think to a certain yeah. degree, it's not that interesting. But I, I also it's probably the least interesting part of the episode, only because it's revealed to be a means to an end. But I think what it reveals is while Vedic Wynn may not believe this and while Vedic Wynn is just using this as a way to gain power and, and to sort of like up her hand in the Vedic assembly. It's it's really about showing that there are these deep divisions in Bajoran society that we haven't really seen yeah. before. And, you know, the fact of the matter is the Federation can come in, the provisional government, you know, the Kai can sort of try and hold the society together, paper over these differences as long as possible and maybe sort of heal the, the you know, because this is a society that is very damaged. Right. Yeah. And and this is just sort of what what happens after this this sort of trauma. But. You know, Vedic Wynn very astutely identifies Deep Space Nine as a place where a lot of eyes are on. Yeah. She identifies the school. She identifies the fact that there are a lot of Bajoran children there. And frankly, you know, whether or not her, her motivations are actually pure, just, or, or, or whatever you want to call them, at the end of the day, she is driving deep divisions between the two. And... You know, well, I would say she's not driving. She's highlighting ones that already exist. And I think that's what's yeah, the yeah. most dangerous part of it, because to a very real degree, she has a point. I mean, y y y the Federation, number one, has no responsibility to teach the Bajoran faith. It frankly, you know, should not have any responsibility because it's not a Bajoran thing, you know, and 
for children who are Bajoran. Their parents may want them growing up, you know, and learning about that. And so, yes, you know, if there are enough Bajoran families on the station who want that, they need to figure out, well, how do we provide that for them? And, you know, the her point, is, which she, I, you know, it, it is clear that Wynne goes a lot further than perhaps most people would. I mean, I think it's very clear. Kayapaka in the very first episode seems to know about the more scientific bits about the wormhole, you know, and she understands, you know, she's the kind of person who understands, you know, what's going on on a particle level, but that doesn't, you know, waver the mystical elements of it either. You know, even though she knows that the prophets are aliens, that doesn't change, you know, the insights that they've gotten from that, you know, and, you know, uh, Wynn is not able to make that connection or is unwilling to. And again, it's very clear that there are plenty of other people who feel the same way. Well, and I think that the other thing, too, about that, of course, is that I don't think Kiko O'Brien is doing anyone any favors by taking no. this hardline stance. And, you know, she's coming from a very different culture, of course, in the Bajoran. She's coming from the Federation. She's coming from sort of the, the humanistic, scientific, you know, non-religious, you know, what, atheistic, fed, you know, whatever you want to call it. We, we don't see a, that religion plays a large role in, in the humans of the 24th century. No. But at the same time, you know, you have to look at this and you have to say, well, Bajor is being revealed to be a planet that is maybe a theocracy. I mean, we don't really know what the extent of the the, the Vedic assembly and sort of what the Kai really is. Does the Kai have political power? Does the Kai not have political power? What is the role of the, the provisional government here? I, I mean, you the get the safe thing. I think the only safe thing to say really is that, you know, this is a this is a society that doesn't really have a separation of church and state. And, yeah. you know, that's all fine. You know, if that's what the Bajorans want and that, that whatever, that's what they want. But at the end of the day, Vedic Wynne is imposing her yeah. beliefs on people that don't believe them. And I think her point is, you know, I think that's kind of the problem of the episode, of course. Is yeah. that I think while Vedic Wynne is using this as a way to gain power, it does, you know, the other Bajorans do have a point. I mean, these are Bajoran children that she's teaching and, you know, but at the same time, if the the parents of these Bajoran Bajoran children want them to learn about the Bajoran religion, then they should probably open their own school. Well, I guess to the degree that, um, and, and, I mean, even Cisco makes the point at the beginning where he says, we're not doing that, you know, that that's going to defeat the entire purpose of everything. If we have to have two schools and, um, I mean, you, again, you could see, which I don't know that I did. I don't know that I agree with Cisco on that. Though. No, I you don't know, like, either. I, I mean, I, there's, I, there's a religious schools exist for a reason. And, and yeah. if people want them, I think that's fine. I mean, I think that what I, I this guess... is really the, and I think this is really the tension of the episode is that Cisco seems to believe that his role here is not to build a bridge between the Federation and the Bajorans with a possible admittance of Bajor into the Federation. It's to turn Bajor into a Federation planet. Yeah. And I think that that while that may seem like a tautology or it may not seem like a difference, I think it really is a difference. And no, no, and you while, know, yeah, the, the if if see that's the thing the 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 that the the episode kind of begins to deal with that question that you have Bajor, which is a fundamentally religious or spiritual or theocratic or whatever you want to call it, and then you have the Federation, which is a fundamentally, you know, it, it doesn't believe in God. It doesn't you know, it, it still has its more code of morality, but it's much more secular. And, you know, yeah, one, you know, the two of them can be sure join the Federation and still keep that while, you know, keeping what 
makes it unique. I mean, we've seen Vulcan in the Federation. Again, we've talked that's Vulcan and uh, 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 um, Klingon are the two most, you know, religious, you know, cultures that we've seen in the series. And they that's much more both are much more ritualized than, you know, more theological in a way. You know, again, we see Vulcan as more of a, you know, you know, again, ritualized, uh, you know, and, and especially Klingon, you know, Klingons more, de- but they're more dealing with codes of values and ethics, you know, uh, yeah. Vul- Vulcan religion is based on its perception of logic. Klingon is based on its conception of honor and warrior, you know, Nis. And so they are very easily able to exist as Federation members because, you know, no one in the Federation is going to stop, you know, the Pon Far ceremony, for example, but, um, because it's well, not, I think that's, I think that's an interesting analogy, though, because one of the I think that's making me realize one of the failings of this episode and one of the failings so far of, of the Bajoran religion is that what what is it like? You know, we don't really know. Yeah. And, and well, we, can say what the, we, we can say what the Klingon religion stands for and we can say what the Vulcan religion or mysticism stands for. But what well, does I think, Bajoran religion stand for? We don't know. I think this episode is making it clear that people have different interpretations. Again, Kayapaka and Burrell seem to think that, you know, there is a scientific underpinning for everything that's happened. You know, we know what these orbs are, you know, we know what they mean, you know, and all of that. But at the same time, we have gotten some deep spiritual truths from that, you know, which have have guided our morality and our culture and stuff. And they see in a way the science and the religion as complements to each other. And, you know, that would work very fine in the Federation. And frankly, you could have, I don't think even Cisco would have a problem with if you have a Federation school and then, you know, but we're also going to have, you know, for the Bajoran children who wish to learn more, we're going to have CCD for the, you know, for the most part, you know, that, you know, to have the two complements. You might have to explain what that is. Uh, (laughs) CCD basically. So um, if you go to Catholic school, you have your religious education, you know, taught there. If you go to a public school, it's something you do after school, like once a week or something like that, where you basically have religious education taught separately. Um, So, you know, yeah, if they have a separate class, you know, to teach, you know, something or Frankly, you know, my, my Jewish friends have gone to Hebrew school. You know, people I know who, you know, I knew a couple of kids who were Chinese who went, you know, to a special school afterwards to learn, you know, Chinese culture and writing and stuff like that. So that, you know, that would that would dovetail well, except when makes it impossible for the two, because she, you know, she's the one who puts her foot down and says the religion and the science cannot coexist. You know, the yeah. one dis, you know, dismantles the other. And from her view, you can't have. You know, you can't be in school all day learning stuff that's, you know, we're going to have to unteach later on. Well, yeah, I think so. But I think that, that you know, how much of that is, is heartfelt and how much yeah, of that exactly. is not is the open question of the episode, right? And, and maybe most Bajorans don't really – maybe most Bajorans are of the modern thought that, you know, again – Science, you know, the science and the religion are complementary. And again, you know, they make it clear that Wynn is this leader of the sect that is not very, you know, powerful anymore. That is not very, you know, I, I think, you know, for the most part, you know, most people probably don't follow her. But at this point, she is on Deep Space Nine and she is speaking very passionately. And, you know, she is famous and she's there. And, you know, it's a, it's a case of everyone getting caught up in a fervor. You know, you I don't know to what degree you know, the jub-jub stick seller, you know, really believes in religion in this way. But 
you know, when everything's getting really exciting and, you know, hey, hey, you know, you know, uh, um, Maritza in his persona as, you know, Galdar Heel, you know, even says, you know, Bajorans like to be seen as victims. Well, you know, this is an opportunity for the Bajorans to be seen as victims. Yeah. And I think, you know, well, that's that's interesting because one of the things that I think is kind of a I don't know if it's a misstep in the episode or, or, or if it's a misstep on Cisco's part, but it's that scene where he's kind of going toe to toe with Vedic Wynn and speechifying on the promenade. Because to yeah. me, you know, all everything that Cisco says is fine, but it, but it, you know, I, I think that, and I don't know that the episode is on this side or not, but my interpretation of that is that Cisco, while he's saying things that are correct he also is coming across as a bit tone deaf he's coming across he's coming across as a bit of a federation bully and i think that he's doing more damage to the federation bajoran relationship in that scene than than he thinks he is i think he's I mean, he he thinks that the bajorans are going to rally to his side and come to his you know come to his defense and i don't know that they will and and so you yeah, know the way this they, is a very the fragile they, relationship though he is gambling a lot in that and i mean the way they even focus on kira during that speech almost you know, she's very subtly almost thinking this is not necessarily I, I think, you know, she's even thinking that it's not the best thing for him to say at this point, because it just yeah. as easily could have walked. That speech could have just as easily ended with every single Bajoran moving to the other side of the room. And, you know, Cisco left alone. I mean, it, it was, you know, I don't think Kira would have moved, you know, and left Cisco. And again, the the end of the episode makes it very clear that, no, she is. She's with him, you know, no matter what, you know, she's with him. But well, and I think the other thing, too, about about that is that I think that Cisco is is deeply underestimating Vedic win. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But but again, we know that she's, you know, crazy and she's plotted this crazy thing, you know, but he still Mm. thinks of her. He's I don't know that she's crazy. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, you're you're right. That's that's a bad word. She's. you know, cartoonishly super villainous. How's that? Um, and I, 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 he does underestimate her. I think during the until the very end, he does still think of her as just somebody whose view of religion is a little backwards, and you know, who's causing trouble on his station for no real reason. But if he makes a good enough Picard speech, you know, everything's going to be okay. Yeah, and yeah. he's unfortunately not in that show. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that's a good way to, to 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 look at it. And I guess at the end at the end of the day, I think you know what we're left with, of course, is is no resolution really, right? Because yeah, you know, I think O'Brien feels betrayed by Neela because they had this sort of like nice little relationship, and now she's revealed to be untrustworthy. I, I really liked, that... by the way, how they've been. You know that that's like one of the interesting things that the show can do because. She was at least on the last episode and maybe one or two others just in a very, very quick scene. I mean, the scene in Duet, you know, they're just fixing a thing and she's there for two seconds. But she's been a character and they very deliberately put her in to be revealed as the traitor at the end of this season. You know, yeah, I like that they're able to do that. They they wanted to have her appear in three episodes because they felt like that was enough yeah. to sort of establish her as a recurring character and that it would be shocking that she was supposed to be the assassin. And what happened was that she only appeared in one other episode, which was Duet. And, it, you know, so it's kind of interesting that you're extrapolating that she appeared in other episodes, even though she didn't. So I think it okay. kind of worked. 
but they want the the actress that they initially got to play the role didn't work out for some reason and so there was this other character i think called anara or something in, in in a previous episode that was intended to be that character and then when that episode, okay. that, that actress didn't work out they had to like do a new character named Neela. so that's what happened there but that that's okay, that's okay. actually that that was their intention and yeah you know at the end of well the day done. Well, because yeah, we've seen, I, I mean, hell, oh, that's how O'Brien was introduced. You know, he, you know, they, yeah. they, they have, you know, the, the, the franchise, re, you know, you know, starting with, you know, Next Generation more has a history of we're going to, you know, and frankly, for all I knew, she could have been, you know, just someone that we just see as O'Brien's assistant every any time, you know, in the next few seasons, you know, he just needs someone to hand him a wrench. She's there, you know, um, right. But I think you know it's it's a it's a it's a weird place to leave the season because of course you have, yeah. you know O'Brien not trust not trusting Neil anymore and sort of having his his faith shattered perhaps in Bajorans. You have Cisco who's who's really unsure about what exactly the relationship is between the fe- between the Federation and Bajor after seven months. You have Kira's faith being shattered. You have Vedic Barail perhaps realizing that that his position is a lot more tenuous than he than it thought it was that the Bajoran people are a lot more divided than we thought they were when the, when the show perhaps started, you know, we have Keiko Brian kind of having all of the parents of these Bajoran children pull yeah. their kids out of school. And, and maybe she's not really trusting them anymore. I mean, this has caused a lot yeah, Ke- of I discord. Mean, Keiko's place of business, you know, the place she is at every day was blown up. There was essentially an attempt on her life made. And while it turned out to be for, I mean, do you think Keiko, Keiko will probably not know the extent to what happened? I don't think, you know, you know what I mean? No. Like, I, I uh, Kira is not going to be able to debrief everybody about that. So, yeah, I mean, the, the O'Brien family is probably still a little terrified, you know, and realizing that, you know, shit, well, you know, this one incident was, you know, fine, but this could flare up again, again, in the... The conversation, you know, one of the reasons that Keiko ends up digging her heels in is that scene when, you know, she's saying, well, it's not, you know, it's, you know, when she's just like, well, what what do we do when we're dealing with evolution? What do we deal with this? And she's saying, well, we'll deal with that when the time comes. Like, Keiko knows that, you know, another controversy could erupt at any time. There, It's a landmine. Well, yeah, and I think that, that what what they're really realizing, of course, is that they're not on the federation or they're not in the federation and this is a very different place than they thought they were in and they were operating under a set of cultural and social assumptions that are just not true and i don't know that keiko is going to necessarily be interested in reopening the school at this point you know yeah i think she may go you know what i'll go back to botany like i'm not a actually i'm not an educator i was not trained as, as an educator i just did this because whatever and i don't want to deal with this and you know what i mean I but remember really and again, remember where they were at the beginning of the season, not really sure if, you know, is this really the best place to start a family? You know, is this really the best place that we should be right now, uh, a young couple with a, you know, two-year-old? Do- and they've finally got in home, you know. The, this, oh, Miles has finally started, you know, getting, figuring out how to work with the computer. She's finally getting yeah. school to run well, you know? Yeah. I mean, remember the, remember the beginning of the season, you know, people didn't think that, you know, the school would work and she already, you know, had people, you know, doubting the school and had to, you know, win their trust. And then suddenly the school is blown up, you know, how does she, yeah, convince, pa- how does she convince parents that it's okay to send their kids there? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that she can. Frankly, and I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with that in the second season. 
I'm really excited. Well, I'm glad. All right. Well, if you would like to share your thoughts on either one of these episodes, please do so at the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. Please follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash trekaboutshow. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekaboutshow. And please leave us a positive five-star iTunes review. It makes us both very, very happy. Next week, we start the second season of Deep Space Nine, which is uh, 26 episodes with The Homecoming and The Circle. Oh, and that's when uh, Kira comes back and she's wearing like this really cool dress and she's like, I'm the homecoming queen. And then they all stand in the circle and do the hokey pokey. You've seen this episode before, haven't you? I had seen one or two of the series. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>